0: Good morning everyone. We are beginning a new series this week. If you're new or visiting, uh, our usual here is just to work right through books of the Bible verse by verse and chapter by chapter, Uh, but we're pausing in our study in the Gospel of Mark uh, to focus on a series uh, we're calling Showing Hospitality. And so for the next four weeks, uh, we're going to be talking through Uh, what hospitality is, the significance of it from a Christian perspective, um, and trying to grow uh, in our own practice of hospitality as representatives of God's kingdom. And so this morning, if you would open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there's some in the back of the pew in front of you. Um, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and chapter 18 is where we're going to pick up. The word hospitality shows up pretty, uh, pretty commonly in the Bible, as well as the language involved in hospitable acts, like the word welcome. Welcome is a big word that's used um, throughout the New Testament. But the word itself, hospitality, uh, <coughs> as translated as such in our New Testaments, uh, comes from a Greek word that means love of the stranger. That is kind of the baseline of what we're talking about, love of the stranger. And so this morning, uh, we're going to look at Abraham and a particular occasion in his life where he not only entertains strangers, but gets more than he bargains for. But before we read it, I want to um, point out that this passage here is more than incidental. It's not just something that happened in the life of Abraham. Our author in Genesis holds this story up and contrasts Abraham with the behavior in the next chapter of Sodom and Gomorrah, specifically on this lens of the treatment of strangers. Not only that, but as this is drawn from the life of Abraham, the father of faith, It operates as an example or as a paradigm for us. Uh, And so, here is one of the places where the Bible presents a story, not just to tell us what happened, but to help us understand, help us see uh, a significant aspect of following the God of the Bible. Now, as we read this story, uh, let me point out, since we're not going to read far enough to see this, uh, that the strangers that come to visit Abraham here uh, is actually God himself and a couple of angels. Now, Abraham doesn't know that. The author of Hebrews tells us not to forsake hospitality because some unwittingly have entertained angels. And this is clearly the story that the author of Hebrews is referencing. But it's important that we understand here that Abraham doesn't know that. These uh, visitors don't glow in the dark. Uh, They don't announce themselves as the living God. The angels, you know, aren't hiding awkwardly, wings under their robes or something like that. They appear to be humans and humans that Abraham has never met, okay? That is significant for us to understand before we read. So let's read together just the first eight verses of chapter 18 of Genesis And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet." And rest yourselves under a tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you've come to your servant. So they said, Do as you've said. And Abraham went quickly to the tents of Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Let's pray. Father, as we look at Abraham's example this morning, I pray that we'd be able to get under the hood of the significance of hospitality. I pray, Lord, that in these next few weeks you would help us not just to open our minds to the importance of this act as an act of Christian worship, but you would also open our minds to... uh, to understand its significance as a reflection of what you've done in Jesus Christ. I ask that you would help us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get into the study, uh, one other thing. Uh, I have a book recommendation for you for the next four weeks, and I have a couple of copies in the back. Uh, the book is by Rosaria Butterfield. It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key." I have about four copies back there. They're $15 a piece if you'd like to pick one up today. If we run out, I will pick up more. Um, uh, And you'll find when when you see the books, you'll find a recommendation that Anna Taylor has written from her own reading of the book. I also have read it and really enjoyed it. Um, But it really gets into the nuts and bolts and provides an example in our day and age of what Christian hospitality looks like. So here... Abraham sees these strangers, he takes care of their needs, invites them into his house, and as I mentioned, they end up being uh, God's envoy. Uh, It is a divine visitation, and by the end of this, they're actually going to give something to Abraham. He thinks that he's the host, but he's going to end up being the recipient. It's at this occasion that God announces that Sarah, Abraham's wife, is going to be pregnant, even in her old age, even being postmenopausal, and have the baby that God has promised. And it's going to happen within a year's time. Uh, but here in the beginning, he doesn't know that. And that can be confusing to us because when you look at the language he uses, it sure seems like he knows. Look again at verse three. He said, O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. I want you to notice there, most likely in your Bible there, the word Lord is uh, capital L, lowercase o-r-d, as opposed to verse one, where it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Can everyone see that? Okay, the translators there are, are cluing us into where the d- divine name is used for God in the Hebrew, and where the title Uh, that we use for God, which is really close to Lord, Adonai is used, okay? Now, Adonai, the one that's used by Abraham here, is just a term of respect. It's the same thing you'd use in any uh, place where you were expressing respect. It's, It's just a little bit elevated over the word sir, okay? And so here, Abraham is being tremendously respectful, but he does not yet know who it is he's entertaining, now, like I said, the first thing we should recognize here is that this story is juxtaposed with what happens in chapter 19. In fact, in the end of chapter 18, one of these visitors is going to be standing with Abraham overlooking the valley in which Sodom and Gomorrah dwells, and he decides to reveal to Abraham that a cry has gone up from the mistreated in the city of Sodom. And, uh, and that he plans to go and investigate and destroy them in judgment uh, if he finds their injustice to be true. Abraham, knowing his family, his own nephew Lot, is living in that city, intercedes uh, and presses against God's justice and asks the question, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? And God says, if I even find ten righteous men, I will leave the city standing. But in the next chapter... These two other angels, who are part of this party here, uh, go into Sodom, and that's where the contrast begins. They do find, in fact, it's parallel in its language, hospitality in the house of Abraham's nephew Lot. But the entire city, their treatment of strangers is completely different than Abraham's. Nobody invites them into the house when they see them out there, and then they storm the house and demand these strange men that they might rape them. It's violent, it's horrible, it is abuse. And so here we have then a contrast of righteousness and wickedness, but what's striking uh, is that it's in the concept or in the terms of hospitality. In fact, Peter refers to Lot in the New Testament, as righteous Lot. And if you've read uh, Genesis through, that's a questionable title. Lot is kind of a mess. His family is kind of a mess. By the time his story ends in Genesis, his daughters get him drunk and then both get pregnant from their father. Uh, it's, it's a mess, okay? But when we talk here about righteousness, uh, most likely what Peter has in mind in the context is his righteous hospitality. James takes a similar approach, telling us that our faith is justified by our works. But if you read that in the context, the works that James says demonstrates our faith as Christians, what shows that we truly believe that Jesus Jesus is the Messiah and died for our sins, are acts of mercy. We can't just say to someone who is unclothed, and hungry, go be warm and be filled without taking care of their physical needs. Doing so demonstrates that we understand the gospel. And so when he goes on and illustrates from the life of Abraham, most likely he has hospitality in mind. In fact, hospitality is such a significant part of the Christian life that First Clement, which is a letter written to the church of Corinth after the New Testament times, okay, in the first century just a generation or so removed from 1st and 2nd Corinthians in the New Testament, one of the leaders in the church writes a letter to the still existing church in Corinth, okay? And in it, he suggests that Abraham was saved, quote, by faith and hospitality. Now, that's that's a striking statement, isn't? isn't it? I mean, when we read... Uh, when we read the book of Galatians, for example, Paul makes clear that salvation is by faith alone, and when we add anything to that, we actually lose the gospel. So what could the author of First Clement possibly mean? What could it mean that this significance is maintained? And it is a New Testament significance. In First Timothy, pastors are required to be hospitable. And whenever we look at the list of what's required of leaders in the church, we should basically read them as professional Christians. These are things that all Christians should be, so especially those who are in positions of leadership. Uh, Hebrews, as I already mentioned, said we shouldn't forsake the practice of hospitality. When you read through the book of Luke and Acts, they revolve around food and hosts and guests, providing this lens, this example into these things. In fact, let's look at one more place before we delve into Genesis 18. In Matthew 25, Jesus gives a parable about the end of the world and the judgment of all human beings. I want you to notice the way that this goes down. This is in Matthew 25, in verse 31. Jesus speaking says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory... ...and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another... ...as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Okay, so do you see here? It's the consummation of all things. It's the end of the world, and Jesus here divides all people into two groups. Like sheep in one and goats in the other. And then verse 33, he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left It's hospitality, it's love of the stranger, it's care for those who are in need. Uh, It is opening your home and your heart to other people. And then verse uh, 37, the righteous will answer him saying, "'Lord, when did we see you hungry "'and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? "'And when did we see you a stranger "'and welcome you or naked and clothe you? "'And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you?' And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Do you see the similarity here between Jesus' parable and what we read about in Genesis chapter 18? Just as Abraham unwittingly entertains and shows hospitality to the God that made him, So also, Jesus says, at the end of the world, he will divide the righteous from the wicked and he will say, righteous, enter into your inheritance because you were hospitable to me, because you fed me when I was hungry, and you tended to me when I was sick, and you visited me when I was in prison. And just like Abraham, the righteous here unwittingly were doing so, and they say, when? When did we see you and do these things? He says, when you did it for the stranger, when you did it for the least of these, right? A categorical uh, expression that means the least likely, the lowest down the totem pole, the, <coughs> the untouchables, the weak, the far, the distant. Okay. Now, remember here, these are the words of Jesus himself. They can't be easily disregarded. It would be a mistake for us this morning to set this aside and go, well, Jesus says this, but what he actually means is we are saved solely and completely by believing in Jesus Christ and him alone. How do we reconcile these two things? How can it be that there can be a one-to-one correlation between what saves us, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our trust in that death and resurrection for ourselves, and the expression of that salvation, in hospitality? That's the question that we need to answer this morning. What we have to weigh here is that according to Jesus, our treatment of the stranger matters. Put yourself in Abraham's shoes this morning. Okay, so Abraham is in the land of Canaan in modern-day Israel. He's in his tent. It's a hot afternoon and he sees people walking off in the distance that he's never met. Not his neighbors, not his family, not his servants who work for him, not the people who live down the road, strangers. And he runs to them and he invites them in. He kills an entire calf for them. There's only three of them, right? A pizza would do, but he, he sets up a feast. When it says here that he prepared uh, three seers of fine flour... Uh, that, is, that is loaves and loaves and loaves and loaves of bread. It's way more than three people can eat. Okay? It's a tremendous expression of generosity, but let me just put it simply like this. Abraham sees strangers and he invites them into his home. It's hard to imagine us doing the same, isn't it? It's hard to juxtapose. Now, we should remember that part of this context is that, uh, that Abraham lives in a relatively barren place, there are villages, there are cities around, but as people traveled, it's not like the uh, urban sprawl that we have today, right? Uh, as you went from town to town, you went through barren places where there was no one, okay? Travel was often dangerous and difficult, uh, if you didn't bring enough provisions or if the weather was hotter than you intended there were things that could even be life threatening hospitality wasn't just an act of generosity it was an act of life okay it was a way of taking care of but it doesn't change the fact that here he treats those he does not know strangers so well and as i mentioned that is what we mean when we say hospitality now Growing up, my father, for the duration of my life, has been in the hospitality industry. And when I use the word, that's generally what I think of. Okay? I think of food and beverage. I think of hotels. Okay? Those are the things that I think of, but that's not what we're talking about here. Okay? You are not fulfilling the characterization of hospitality because you turn one of the bedrooms in your house to an Airbnb. Okay? You're not fulfilling what we're talking about in Christian hospitality uh, because you take care of your friends and your families. As I mentioned, the word is love of the stranger. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be a hospitable host to friends and family, but you're not scratching the surface of what we're talking about until you start at the other end. Here's the thing. God has given us homes. I know some of the homes that we live in are just studio apartments. I know some of the families that fill those homes is just a couple of roommates. I know we're all in diverse circumstances and you may have a kitchenette as opposed to a kitchen. You may not even have a dining room table. But we need to recognize right now that for the Christian, the home is an outpost of the kingdom. As a Christian, the home is something that God has given us as a venue, as a place for doing his work. Now, the reason why I'm hitting that so hard is because I think us as modern Americans generally think of the home as an escape, as the one place that is for our use, where we can get away from other people, okay? We also view it as a, uh, as a investment. It's the place where we store our stuff and build up our future and go to enjoy our things, okay? But when you look at the home in the New Testament, it is the hub of ministry. Remember, in the first century, the Christian church didn't meet in church buildings. It didn't have a place to go on Sundays. Sometimes they would rent for larger churches large public spaces, like the Hall of Tyrannus in Ephesus, or the, uh, the, the porch of Solomon in the temple in Jerusalem. But generally, churches met in houses. And that wasn't just people who were already Christians, but people who were investigating Christianity. Okay? Let me put it in terms that I think uh, will help you to understand. You have people you see regularly in your life who, as it stands right now, are not likely to show up here. Am I right? Even if you invited them, there would be hesitancy. There would be resistance. There would be reluctance. Okay? But you're home. An invitation into your home may be the only place where they ever encounter a Christian community. This is the significance of hospitality. Love of the stranger comes from a couple of places which we will talk about. But I actually want to start with the practical side of it. So I want you to just draw a few things we see here. The first is, I want you to notice once again that the men that Abraham sees here are strangers. Very practically, that means two things, okay? One, they're different. You see, when we talk about our homes, and when we talk about our tables, we really haven't moved on much from seventh grade, right? Do you remember eating in seventh grade? There were tables that you sat at and tables where you were not welcome. There were people who sat at your table, who were part of your group, part of your clique, and then there was that table over there for the Goths and that one for the nerds. right? We as human beings, categorically, part of what it means to be human, is to find our identity in a group. And one of the ways we do that is not just defining by who's not just defining who's in, but also who's out. And we fence. We boundary that community and we say, this is us, you are not us, okay? And the truth is, we do the same things with our homes and with our tables as adults. Uh, Think even in terms of restaurants and how they diversify culturally, economically, okay? There are places that are prestigious, that are closed invitation, these types of things. Uh, but, But here is a call to love the stranger. And the first thing I want you to recognize about the word stranger is that word strange, different. Okay. There's a principle in social uh, sociology called the homogenous unit principle. Isn't that nice? The H-U-P, the homogenous unit principle. The idea is basically that people are so designed that they generally rather be like pe- around people like them. If they're white-collar, they want to be with white-collar people. If they have a certain ethnicity, they want to be with their ethnicity. Okay, if they have certain cultural affinities or these types of things, they naturally gather in groups. This principle is so significant that in the 1980s, one of the leading seminaries in the United States presented it as a philosophy of the church. Okay? We need to pay attention, they said, to the homogenous unit principle, and we need to focus on micro-communities in the church and build church just for them. Now, if you look around America, you will still see the byproducts of that decision, uh, and we see it in every level. Now, some of those divisions go back even further, which uh, which is why it has been said that the most segregated hour in America is Sunday mornings. There's racial divisions, there's economic divisions, there's hipster churches and old people churches, there's services, you know, that are mild at nine and wild at seven, right? There's all of these things, and it all comes from this recognition that we like to be around people like ourselves. Why? It's not just because different is different, it's because different is dangerous, okay? At the very least, it's uncomfortable, it will ask something of us. It leads to awkwardness. But at the most, and this is the other thing about the word stranger, it means someone you do not know. When you go out and hang out with your friends, you know what you're getting. There's a heritage in the relationship. There's tradition in the relationship. There's a level of trust and understanding. With a stranger, you're talking about the unknown. When I presented that uh, concept of us being in Abraham's shoes, the first things we thought about was the potential violations of our home. The danger of inviting a stranger into our home and not knowing what to expect. Okay. Now the second thing I want to point out to you uh, this morning is what it says in verse 2. So it's the heat of the day. In verse 2, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, okay, so he looked, and then he saw and that's really two things, okay? It's, it's like the difference between hearing and listening, okay? I hear everything my wife says. That doesn't mean I listen to all of it, right? It doesn't mean that I'm tuning into it. The sounds are bouncing off my ears and I'm not paying attention. In, in the same way, looking means he's, his eyes are pointed in the general direction of these men, but then he sees them. Whatever it means to love the stranger or, uh, begins with the recognition of the stranger. It sees them. Okay. One of the things we talk about when we talk about those who are left out of communities, those who are on the outside or on the fringes, has to do with this idea of visibility. Okay. They go unseen. They fall through the cracks. And if we're going to be a hospitable people if we're going to fulfill Jesus' call uh, to love the stranger, it begins with actually seeing them, recognizing that they're there. Not only does he see these men, but he recognizes that they are in need of hospitality. He sees them and he sees an opportunity to serve them. What I'm suggesting this morning is if we're going to develop the heart that Jesus requires of us, the love of the stranger, first we must pray for the eyes that sees the stranger. And let's just be honest here. You don't have to set up a tent in the middle of the Middle East to wait for strangers to give hospitality. There are strangers in our midst this morning. Don't worry, I won't point you out. But as you sit here in this room, there are people who are different than you. There are people who are unknown to you. That distance is the distance that we're talking about. In your apartment building, there are apartments that seem locked and closed that are mysterious. You don't know who lives there. You've never seen them. And even the ones you see and maybe nod to, maybe not since we're Seattleites, uh, in the hall, you don't actually know them. They're strangers. Hospitality according to Rosaria Butterfield in her book, turns strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. But it begins, it begins with seeing them. It begins with recognizing that they're there. Now, once again, just to illustrate, when our service ends today, who are the people you're most likely to see? You've looked, you've seen the whole room, but who are you actually going to see? Who are you actually going to respond to? Who are you actually going to pursue? Most likely, because this is human nature, it's the people you know. It's the ones who know you. It's the ones that you're excited to see. But the truth is, and I guess I'm, I, this is just the truth for me, I see the people I don't know. But do, do I really see them? Hospitality sees them. It sees it as an opportunity to extend a relationship, to reach across the aisle to move past differences. One of the problems that liberal politics is having right now uh, has to do with this concept of identity politics. Okay. And identity politics is basically defining yourself with so many adjectives that you distinguish yourself fully and primarily from other people. When these things are held out uh, Uh, to the point of, for example, intersectionalism, uh, then it becomes very difficult because before we can understand how to work together, we have to understand all of our differences. And so uh, maybe you're a feminist and I'm a feminist, but I'm also a black woman, and that makes my uh, experience completely different than you. It creates a hierarchy of injustice and a codification. And the problem is, as much as these types of politics are seeking to see the unseen and to bring justice to where there is injustice, it also inherently leaves very little common ground to stand on, makes it very difficult to work together because you're all primarily concerned on working for yourself. Now conservative politics aren't much better. They may be holistically agreed and unified with themselves, but they demonize the other. They reject and they resist and they've never met most of the people they criticize, right? our whole uh, country right now is so divided and that's what makes this issue of hospitality so significant. What I'm suggesting to you is that you should open your homes to people who are different than you. Can you even imagine? Do you think that Rush Limbaugh has over the people he criticizes for dinner? Or that he's ever met them? In a world that is so Isolated through things like Twitter where we talk at people instead of talking with them. Hospitality is a completely different thing. Abraham knows nothing about these men and he opens his home. He doesn't know where they stand in politics. He doesn't know know, where they come from or where they're going. The issue here is not that we should forsake All sense of responsibility or security, it's that our posture should be one of invitation. But that begins with us seeing, with us looking around, with us knowing our neighbors. Did you know, speaking of strangers, that Seattle is one of the primary cities for refugee relocation in America? We don't have to go across the world to serve or to know or to love refugees. We just have to go across the town. They're right here. You see, what I'm suggesting to you is it's not that you don't know these people who are different than you because they're not here. It's because you're not looking. That's where it has to start. That's where it has to begin. The second thing I want you to notice here uh, is that when he saw them, it says here in verse 2, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Now, I'm not suggesting here that hospitality can't begin the other way around. That somebody can't knock on your door and say, hey, we need help. Okay? But what I want you to notice here is that Abraham is the initiator. It's also true that Abraham is a stranger to these men. And they could have naturally just gone on by, but Abraham actually runs out to meet them. And let me remind you that in the ancient agrarian context, that's a little bit odd and very awkward, okay? Because he's not wearing a pair of, uh, you know, jeans. He's in a robe. And when you run in a robe, you gird up your loins. You grab the bottom hand and then you run, okay? It's not a very dignified thing. That's what's so striking, In Jesus' parable about the father who has two sons, and one of them goes away and spends all his money, and when he comes home, his father ran to him. It's undignified. Abraham lays aside dignity entirely and puts himself out there and creates, extends this invitation. Hospitality means invitation, it means we initiate. It means we're the ones who reach out. We, just, we don't just see those we don't know. We don't just see those who are different than us, but we reach out to them. And that's what Abraham does here. And then notice, uh, notice his language here. He says, verse 3, O Lord, if I found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under a tree while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. I want you to notice uh, his language here. First, it's relatively self-deprecating, isn't it? He identifies himself to people he's never met as their servant. Now remember, Abraham is a wealthy person. He has a household of more than 300 employees working with such large flocks that he and his nephew Lot couldn't even stay in the same valley because there wasn't enough grass for their livestock. Okay? They had to split up. He's wealthy in the area, he's well known, he's a mover and shaker. Earlier on, he and his 318 servants actually went on a military raid and saved four kings and their citizens from an invading army. Okay. He's well known, he's well respected, but here before a stranger, he humbles himself, and this is more important, he speaks to them with dignity. Doesn't he? He says, oh Lord, if I found favor in your sight, he speaks to these men, he bows himself to the earth. means he got on his hands and knees before them and bows down, right? And he speaks to them with dignity. You see, the the thing is here, hospitality is built on a creation reality. It's built on a broader reality identity than shared national status or shared political party or shared theological viewpoint or shared morality or anything else. It's built on the fact that all human beings bear the mark of being created in the image of God, right? That's what it says all the way back in Genesis, that when God created them male and female, he created them in the image of God. Now that means a lot of significant things, but baseline what it means is that all human life life is worthy of respect and dignity because it was made by God to show who he is to reflect his character and so we treat all human life with the respect it deserves not because of anything they've done in their life or not done not because of anything they've achieved or not achieved in their life but by the baseline reality that they are God's creation and bear the mark of his image dignity. Now, I want you to notice here also the way that he speaks. He says here, if I found favor in your sight, and then look at the very end here, uh, he says at the very end of verse 5, since you have come to your servant. When we put those two things together, what I want you to see is that Abraham sees the arrival of these men as a benefit to him. If I found favor in your sight, if would you bless me by coming into my house, okay? And then when he says, since you've come to my servant, the the wording there is a little bit stronger. He says, since this is why you've come, so that I might be your servant, okay? He sees this as benefiting for him. And you could write that off. You could write this whole thing off as just words and phrases, as just overly polite spiel, okay? But I would suggest to you that there's a significance here that's often forgotten, Too often, and this isn't just true of Christians, but it often is, too often the way that we treat the stranger uh, is as a primary source of benevolence. We are the fixer. We are the provider. We are the upright. We are the right. And we will graciously extend our hand to you. In fact, this is a significant problem uh, with short-term missions, is that the way that people go in is as a white savior, as... Uh, you know, a Christian fixer, and we go in and we solve problems that we do not understand for people that we do not know and therefore cannot fix. This is something we see that I think is so interesting about Jesus's life. Jesus is God himself in the flesh. Jesus, who can miraculously provide for 5,000 people out of a couple of loaves and a couple of fishes. And yet he constantly puts himself in a place of need with human beings. He says to the woman in Samaria, a stranger, and not just a stranger, but a Samaritan. There's no dealings between Jews and Samaritans. How does he begin his conversation with her? Yes, he's going to say, hey, just so you know, I am the Messiah. I'm the one you really need. I will satisfy your desires in a way that water never could, nor could all of the relationships you've had with men. That's where he's going. But where does he start? Would you give me a drink of water? Why? Why does he come and find Zacchaeus disrespected in his community because he's a greedy tax collector who's taken advantage of all of his neighbors? A tiny man hidden up a tree so that he could get a look at Jesus. Why does he stop in the road and say, Zacchaeus, today I'm having lunch at your house. Why does he invite himself over? It's dignity. He expects there to be something he can gain from a relationship with this person, even though they're a stranger. He anticipates a relationship, a real one, which is never one directional, but one of reciprocity. That's dignity. It says, yes, even as Christians, we might say, yes, we have the gospel. We have the goodness of God. We have the best gift we could ever give you. But that doesn't mean we have all the gifts It doesn't mean we have all the light. It doesn't mean we hold all the cards. It doesn't mean that God's common grace isn't manifest in all sorts of other people exactly where they are. And so so we need to keep this in mind and we need to treat people with dignity. In fact, let's see, where is that? In 1 Peter, it says that we should always be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us, okay? But then it says that we should treat those we talk to, those we evangelize, with gentleness and what? Respect. Dignity. Okay. And so we see that here. And then uh, the final thing we see, and this should be somewhat obvious, but that's what makes it so valuable. It's hard to miss. Hospitality means sharing. Sharing. What does he do? He opens up his pantry. He runs to his wife and asks her to bake. He slaughters a calf uh, and puts it on the barbecue for dinner, right? Now, when we look at this, it's relatively extravagant, as I mentioned. Abraham is very generous here. But I would suggest to you that we need to watch out for this idea of hospitality that says it's not hospitable unless it's Martha Stewart. It's not hospitable unless it's amazing, okay? Uh, remember here, Abraham is wealthy, and so I would suggest to you that our hospitality should be proportionate, okay? For Abraham to just set out, you know, a, a box of Ritz crackers and say, that should be sufficient. Once you finish, you can go on your way, would not be hospitable, okay? A second thing I would say is that hospitality costs. It should be a sacrifice, it's when we take from the things we have and we freely share them with, with other people. Okay. Hospitality implies, uh, as a practice in the Christian life, a budgetary commitment. It implies actually spending money on other people as a practice. But it can be very simple. Okay. Hospitality happens... Uh, you know, when, when you add another, another cup of rice to the rice cooker. Hospitality happens uh, when you take a little bit less in your bowl so that they can have some. Okay, as long as there's cost and as long as there's sharing, that's what hospitality is. And this is significant because it means wherever you're at in your life, you can be hospitable. Maybe you only have an apartment with one table and one chair. Abraham here doesn't even sit with his guests, He just stands by just in case they need anything else while they eat. Hospitality is taking what you have and using it and freely offering it to the stranger. This is what hospitality is. And you might look at this and go, what's the big deal? Why does it matter? It seems like such a small thing. Why does Jesus make such a big deal about it in his parable? Why does he make this one of the earmarks of Christian faithfulness? What we have to understand is that hospitality is a reflection of the gospel. Think of what Jesus says in the Gospel of John when he tells his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it wasn't so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you so that you may be where I am. What does that say? It basically says that God has created space in heaven to freely invite us into it. One of the primary pictures Jesus uses for his ministry and the consummation of the coming kingdom is a feast. And he basically says, I've laid out the feast. I myself am the food. I am also the host. All you who would come, come and eat. Listen here to the words of Isaiah, the prophet. Isaiah here presents God's opportunity, his ministry of reconciliation, what God is about in words of hospitality. This is what he says in Isaiah 55. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. It's an invitation. The ministry of Jesus Christ, his life, death, burial, resurrection, and the invitation that comes with it to believe in him, to be reconciled to God, it deals with the greatest problem that human beings have, the fact that we are isolated and alienated from the God who made us. In fact, listen to the language here of Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. Hear it through the lens of hospitality. Paul says in Ephesians 2, speaking of us, us especially as non-Jews, those who the Bible would call Gentiles. He says here, remember that you were at that time, before you were Christians, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Outsiders, strangers, alienated, separated, But now, he says, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I want you to notice that. Hospitality comes at the cost of the host. That's what God has done for us. How has he brought us near? Because of our performance? Because of our impressive identity? Because of our resume? Because we have walked all the distance to his house? No, God condescended, became man, came on earth, laid the table with his own flesh and blood and invited us to come and eat freely. We'll look at this parable in the coming weeks, but Jesus tells another parable about a feast and hospitality, also about the kingdom, and he puts it in the context of a wedding feast. And none of the guests that he's invited will come. The Jews reject Jesus' ministry. They resist it. And so he says to his servants, I want you to go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come. What type of wedding guests do you find in hedges? Okay. That's the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's an invitation to the least of these. You want to know why biblical hospitality doesn't happen inside the church or outside? You want to know why love with a stranger doesn't happen? It's because we choose to find our identity not in those who have received God's hospitality, not in those who had a need that God met, not as recipients of God's grace, but as well-educated or as having these accomplishments or achievements or having this criteria of righteousness or not being like those people, whatever it is. None, No other identity you have, no other self-definition is broad enough to love the stranger, those you disagree with, those who live differently than you, those who believe differently than you. Capitol Hill, our own neighborhood, likes to chalk itself up as being a place that's accepting and welcoming. But if you look on the bars, uh, most of the bars in Capitol Hill have a sign of telling you who's not welcome, okay? Now it's not a bad list, you know, it's no bigots, no homophobes, etc. okay? but I've always wanted to put a sign out in front of our church that says, bigots, welcome. Because Jesus doesn't just die for those who are mistreated. He dies for the mistreaters. He doesn't just die for the abused. He dies for the abusers. His invitation is broader than we can even imagine. And the reason is because the gospel is so great, and what Jesus accomplished is so big, that he can take who you are, wherever you are, how far you feel from God this morning, and change that giving you a new identity, one as a child in the family of God. He doesn't just open his table, he opens his home. He opens his family and he invites you in. And the work of Jesus Christ is so significant that it can actually do it. That means not only when we see the stranger, not only when we see the stranger do we see someone who was made in God's image, but we see someone who God loves so much that they died for that God came to this earth and died in their place, lived a life they could not live, died the death that they deserved, and then freely invites them back into relationship with him. Every stranger you encounter every day is potentially an eternal family member. That's how big the invitation is. That's how many seats are available at the table. That's how inexhaustible the riches in Christ Jesus are. And so our homes then become outposts of the gospel that say, you don't need to clean up before you can be with us. That say, you don't need to agree before you can be with us. That say, you don't need to uh, be on my side of the fence. I will come and I will bring you through the gate and I will sit you at my table. I will treat you with dignity. I will treat you as a neighbor. Jesus asked this question on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, what good is it if you love your friends and family? Everybody does that. But what's truly Christian is loving your enemies. I read a quote yesterday, and the name is escaping me right now. But he pointed out that Christianity reaches out to the enemy to make them friends. That's the way it's supposed to work. And the reason is because we know what it's like to be the enemies of God. We know what it's like to be on the outside. And our invitation to the table of God wasn't an achievement. It wasn't something we accomplished. We were not just strangers to God, but estranged. And God went the distance to carry us home. I mentioned the parable of the two sons and the father in Luke 15. There's two other parables that go with that. So there's the parable that we call the prodigal son, but there's also the lost coin and the lost sheep. And how do all of them end? When the shepherd leaves the ninety-nine and goes out and finds the sheep that is lost and brings him home. What happens next? A party, a celebration. Rejoice, for the sheep that was lost is now found. And so the larder is broken open and the sacrifice is had and there's a party for the old woman who loses one of her 10 coins. When she finds it, what does she do? She opens her home and she invites her friends and neighbors and she celebrates. When the son comes home, who the father had written off for dead. And he says, my son who was dead is now alive. He kills the fatted calf and he throws a party. And even when the elder brother comes with his arms crossed, what does he do? He invites him into the party. Do you know why those parables were told? Do you know the context of Luke 15? It was because Jesus heard the Pharisees grumbling because he ate with sinners and tax collectors, with those who were not appropriate to eat with those who were outsiders. He identified himself, he ate with, he fellowshiped with people that the Pharisees didn't approve of. And so he told a parable and he said, what could be more appropriate? These people were dead and now they live. They were lost and now they're found. That is what we express in our hospitality. An invitation. It gives people a front row seats to the God that loves us and to the goodness of his message, and invites invites them to share in the good gifts that God has given us with the hope that through the establishing of that relationship, a greater and more important relationship would be overcome. Not just two strangers who are now friends, but an estranged human being made in the image of God being restored to his or her creator. You see... When we love the stranger, when we take care of widows and orphans, it shows that the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us, has penetrated to our very core. And it's flowed out through our muscles and into our fingertips and changed our budget. It's changed our habits. It's changed our homes. That's why Jesus can divide people into two camps, the sheep and the goats. It's not because loving the stranger somehow justifies you before God, but you are the stranger who has been justified, and that changes the way you view other people. Listen, for those of you who are Christians, if the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ isn't so good that you want to share it, even with strangers, then you've forgotten its goodness. You've forgotten what it was like to be far away and alienated and estranged. You've forgotten what it was like to be in the shoes of Augustine who said, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you, O Lord. Even when we host people in our homes who are different than us, we really sit at the table like them as guests recipients. So practically, what would it look like this week and this year to move in this direction? What would it look like for you to pursue loving the stranger? Don't get overwhelmed. You don't have to love all eight billion of them, okay? You don't have to look far for the stranger. You don't have to save up to throw a big feast. You can just invite someone to share from the cubicle next door. You can just knock on the door of the apartment right next to yours and introduce yourself and ask them if they'd like to come over for dinner. And the best news is that in our day and age, these things are so rare that they burn with a curious love. They shock and surprise and confuse. You'll find your neighbors asking like the Samaritan woman, why is a person like you talking to me? It'll be like the girl I met at a hospital who was visiting a friend a while ago. And I said, hey, I know you guys came all the way from Bellingham. We've got a bedroom downstairs where you guys can stay if you want to stay the night. And she said, you know, I'm Jewish, right? And I said, well, the house isn't kosher, but you're welcome. You know, she she couldn't understand why I would want anything to do with them. This is the gift that is hospitality. This is what it looks like to love the stranger. And if you're this morning one who feels isolated and alone, feel like an outsider, feel different, at the core of that, deeper than the treatment of other people, whether it's your decisions or the decisions of others that have put you in this place, whether it's because you're new to this city or because you've been here long enough that people really know who you are, whatever the circumstances are, The deepest layer of this goes all the way to the top. It goes to your isolation from the God who created you, and God has laid a feast. He's made himself the food and the host, and he's put out the invitations, and even this morning he's saying, enter in, come, know the living God who loved you and died for you. Let's pray. Father, for those, of you who, for those of us who identify as your children this morning, I pray that we would reflect our heritage, that we would be like our Father in heaven, who goes looking in the highways and hedges, who leaves the 99 and goes after the lost, who cares for the least of these and sees the outsider and the lonely and the oppressed and the unknown, who's not afraid of differences, who invites and shares what we have and lets people enter into the sacred space that we call our home because our home is not ours. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to identify those around us like Abraham did to run and to help And I also ask, Lord, that we would have a fresh vision this morning of your hospitality. You desired to make a way to restore our relationship with you. And so you invite us to a feast that's already paid for. And the cost was so significant and so great, it demonstrates your love of the stranger because we weren't redeemed with gold or silver, but with your precious blood. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't just have, as a concept, that fellowship with God or that fellowship with one another that John talks about, but that we would fully enter into it, that we would enjoy it, that we would take our seat at the table, that we would feast and be filled and rejoice together. In your name. Amen. We're going to respond this morning by continuing our worship.